This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We hear a lot about the fragmentation of media, that we're all distracted and getting our news on social platforms and no longer tuning in on mass to the 6 or 7pm news each night or buying a newspaper in the morning. But we hear less about what we actually are doing in greater numbers and that's the big switch off. We're avoiding news no matter how it's delivered because we're finding it depressing or just oppressive in its constantness. And Catherine Murphy's been writing about this and um, it is a new issue facing the media, unfortunately, and also politics. Uh, she's been writing the latest Mianjin. Um, Catherine, of course, is political editor at The Guardian Australia and adjunct at the University of Canberra. And it's great to have you on Triple R, Catherine. It's delightful to be here. And I did laugh, Catherine, and was somewhat reassured when uh, reading your piece that even you, the political editor of uh, Guardian Australia, <laughs> describe yourself as an avoider of the news. Why do you feel like you need oh. to switch off at particular times? I'm a big time avoider of news. I mean, true confessions, guys. I'm a I am a big time avoider of news if uh, I don't need to consume it. I think partly in my own case, it's because uh, my job requires a, a degree of connectedness that uh, most people don't have to contemplate in their ordinary lives. I am quite literally saturated in news from the moment I plug in in the morning at sort of seven o'clock and and remain saturated in news until I walk out the door of my office usually around 8pm. So uh, I find when I stop, uh, I really need to stop. Otherwise, you do start to go a bit crazy after a period of time. And I think uh, that that's, uh, while my experience is sort of at the extreme end of saturation in news content, I think a lot of people now uh, that our that technology makes us so constantly connected to breaking events that people are more more saturated in news content than they have been at other points in our history because the little uh, devices that we carry around in the palms of our hands literally bring us whatever's happening in the world uh, the the sort of instant it's happening so uh, and a lot of the news sadly around the the world is is not happy news so uh, this research that the University of Canberra participates in which is sort of mentioned at the beginning of my latest essay sort of charts people's uh, news consumption habits and it indicates that uh, that a number of us are actively avoiding news content for a variety of reasons uh, some people avoid because they don't trust the organisations who are reporting the news. Some people switch off because it makes them depressed. Um, you know, there's, there's a range of reasons, basically, yeah. why a number of us are switching off. And it's, um, I must say, when I was reading your article, I thought, gee, the media really needs another issue to deal with at the moment. But it is something that has to be discussed <laughs> and, and it affects politics as well. But I, I wonder how endemic is it in Australia compared to elsewhere? Because that research that you just mentioned actually looks at the way the, that people are switching off in some countries around the world, but not so much in mm-hmm. others. Yeah, it's sort of it, it's interesting, and there is a um, there's a I don't know if it's a, if the link's causal or whether it's a correlation, but in countries where there's quite a lot of turmoil uh, turmoil economically and and practically and quite a lot of bad news, the sort of switch off factor is higher. 
in countries where things are more stable, where events are more placid, then there's there's less of that happening. And then you sort of get into the differences that occur in people's news consumption habits based on judgments they make about uh, whether various publications are biased according to their own worldviews. That if you sort of look in America, there's um, uh, there's sort of big issues with trust for people on the right of the spectrum with uh, with the liberal media in inverted commas in the states uh, that there's people who don't regard uh, the reporting of the times or cnn or washington post as particularly reliable if they are right of center people and vice versa um you know there's sort of a people regarding fox and outlets sort of quite partisan outlets um, as as being more reliable than uh, than sort of uh, outlets with a liberal bias, and that's and that's another that's another factor that's sort of sitting behind this as well, which I sort of get into through the essay a little bit. And I mean, th- there's engagement with news and also engagement with politics. And we've seen around the world that the rise of some somewhat unconventional political candidates in uh, places like France and also the UK, and of course um, the US as well, and now even in New Zealand. And and you say in your article that people engage with politics when they think political leaders have something to say. I wonder if you you feel yeah. that Australians are, are craving a political leader that that has t- something to say that has that cut through because it doesn't feel like we've had one of those leaders in in quite some time well in australia if we sort of pull back from uh the the examples that you've mentioned and just sort of have a look at what we tend to do in election cycles uh, sometimes australians vote in new governments if that makes sense Uh, i think uh, that probably australia voted for golf whitlam in the 1970s there was a big campaign and it's time campaign that voters rallied to and uh, and Labor was put back into government after a very, very long period in opposition. Of course, didn't the story didn't end happily, but I think that genuinely was voting for, for a change, voting for someone new. Um, I think also, too, that uh, we saw a little bit of that factor when Kevin Rudd was elected in 2007, and uh, I make that point uh, from... I guess the, the the data point I'd reference for that is that uh, Kevin Rudd's approval ratings remain very, very high for the first two years of the Labor government, that it seemed that Australians made a, a, a sort of an emotional investment in a new political leader. But those are sort of, those cycles, election cycles, are a bit of the exception in Australia. In Australia, we tend to vote out governments that we're dissatisfied with rather than vote affirmatively for political figures who are galvanising. But there's something in in politics right around the world at the present time, and it sort of goes a little bit like this, that uh, voters are very dissatisfied with uh, politics as usual, in inverted commas. There's, there's concerns that the, the global financial crisis has really rewritten the whole economic debate and rewritten politics much like the Great Depression did uh, earlier in the 20th century. And there's all kinds of realignments that are occurring as as a consequence of of the global, the global financial crisis and the protracted recession in other parts of the world, not, not in Australia, but in other parts of the world. So that's had a sort of catalytic effect where... A lot of people are dissatisfied with the sort of with the political consensus on various things on on free market economics or 
uh, economic liberalism or whatever you like to call it, and also on establishment politics in the sense that there is a perception that uh, that establishment political parties have not served the public interest as well as they should. Therefore, we see right around the world in different manifestations, voters uh, listening to figures, political figures, who sound different, who present themselves differently, who can connect in, in, in ways that seem to stretch beyond politics as usual. We do see quite a, a dramatic public response to figures like that. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, obviously he didn't he didn't he didn't win, but he galvanised the youth vote in Britain. Donald Trump in the States uh, obviously uh, galvanised a whole movement and engineered a reverse takeover of the Republican Party. A figure like Emmanuel Macron in France just built a whole political movement out of out of nowhere. But anyway, you asked me about Australia. Would we be interested in a cut through figure? Well, well, probably yes, uh, because. Uh, Australia sort of is, is broadly in lines with trend, in line with trends we see elsewhere. The big difference between politics in Australia and politics in continental Europe, in the UK and the, and the US, is that we did not, unlike those places, uh, suffer a prolonged period of economic downturn after the global financial crisis. So we have echoes of the political dis disruption and dissatisfaction that occurs in, in other advanced democracies. But it's sort of more distant thunder than than a sort of present hailstorm yeah. in Australia. Yeah. If that makes sense, right? And so, but yes, of course, of course, a figure, a political figure who can uh, speak in uh, in language that that people can connect with. Of course, of course, that person's going to find a constituency and an audience in this country. And I, I, I went, you know, just thinking about those examples that you went through. Then um, there was a line in in your article, and you write, you know, th this idea for that relationship between journalists and or the media and political figures this idea that you get your story I move my agenda one step forward and this kind of uh, uh, the, these other figures did they stand aside from the current media did people kind of reward them for um, not I suppose cooperating in the way that that other political figures have with the media Oh, well, a figure like Trump um, and to some degree, I suppose, a figure like Jeremy Corbyn uh, trade to some extent on uh, on bashing up the mainstream media and, and uh, sort of channeling public dissatisfaction, not only with politicians, but with media outlets and their reporting of various issues. I think Trump, Trump did that very successfully and was uh, amplified and uh, abetted and amplified by the sort of uh, alt-right um, eco media ecosystem in the United States, which uh, fed back into mainstream media coverage and also by outlets like Fox News. So um, there's certainly a way that uh, that politicians can uh, try and maximise their own uh, appeal to the public by bashing up media organisations and, and suggesting that media organisations are a big part of the problem. And if, I'm not saying we're, we're not part of the problem, we are part of the problem, but, uh, but it's also, it's fairly crass and exploitative and also, um, but, but successful. Um, someone like Jeremy Corbyn also uh, sort of, um, I think, exploited to some degree the fact that Mainstream media outlets in the UK sort of uh, saw him as, as as a throwback, as a political throwback, uh, who wouldn't 
sort of get a mainstream audience in the UK. And I think he sort of stepped around the the, the sort of derision that he was treated with by a number of media outlets to communicate more directly with voters and through social media and through you know, a sort of organic movement building, for want of a better term, uh, where he just sort of got out um, and talked to people and met people and galvanised people. So there's different ways that parliamentarians are sort of seeking to uh, exploit community dissatisfaction with mainstream media coverage and turn it back in our direction. Uh, so, you know, that that's occurring right around the world and, and you see a little bit of it here too with political figures like Pauline Hanson. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Catherine Murphy, the political editor of Guardian Australia and also adjunct associate professor of journalism at the University of Canberra. We're speaking all about her piece in the new edition of Meange and the politics of listening. And as you mentioned, Catherine, you do shift the focus to the media and, and news organisations uh, in your piece as well. And I mean, we've just had some media reforms um, pass in Parliament over the past week. And, uh, you know, how, how incumbent is it on newsrooms? And I guess, where do you see the future? lying in terms of the media landscape we have in Australia providing that kind of engaging and um, you know quality content that will engage the audience into the future how do you see things playing out well there's a lot of news organizations commercial news organizations uh, that are that are under enormous pressure because of uh, the, our, the business models have been uh, severely challenged by uh, the the tech giants like Facebook and Google uh, basically eating up advertising revenue that once uh, flowed naturally to mainstream media outlets. So you see that in commercial television, you see it in the newspaper sector. Uh, there's a lot of people under a lot of a lot of commercial pressure and over the last 10 years uh, there's been uh, job cuts right throughout the industry uh, at all you know, at, at all outlets really. So we're sort of in a very challenging commercial environment. There's, uh, there's new media laws that passed the parliament last week that will allow um, uh, more commercial media outlets in Australia to uh, acquire competitors and, and merge. So what we'll see uh, in the media landscape in Australia is a concentration, a further concentration of ownership over the next little bit as the sort of incumbent media organisations in Australia seek to um, pursue mergers and acquisitions. And uh, and that's, that's an argument that companies have made, that they want to be able to strengthen their operations by diversifying the sort of media content they produce and also get economies of scale across the business. Now, you know, it's yet to be seen how that will play out in terms of um, of job cuts, but <laughs> I've, uh, I suspect the trend towards uh, smaller newsrooms will continue to play out uh, unless somebody invents some magic solution to uh, the underlying problem, which is that not enough revenue to fund operations. The other thing that we need to say about uh, media in Australia is that we are, if you measure the media ownership, we are one of the most concentrated markets uh, in terms of ownership in the developed world uh, so even before these media changes went through we were already very heavily concentrated in terms of ownership uh, and I think uh, these changes to the legislation will mean that the Australian media sector becomes even more concentrated by way of ownership than it currently is 
um, and that has implications for diversity and for the sort of uh, content that Australian news consumers want to consume and and that's content across the board that reflects a range of views and perspectives uh, and I think you know audiences still want a range of views and perspectives quite apart from that trend there is this sort of um, uh, it's a bit hard to describe what I mean but there is a sort of uh, a, 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 there's various ecosystems kind of forming in the media landscape. I'd refer to the alt right ecosystem in the United States. We don't really have an alt right ecosystem in Australia, really. Uh, not, certainly not by comparison to the US. But we do see now uh, that uh, news organisations asserting quite. Uh, quite definable points of view that go beyond having an editorial set of values but actually have defined points of view um, and and audiences also you know are Again, I think there's some commercial factors here that everybody at media outlets are looking to build audiences and create sort of an emotional relationship with their audiences and loyalty from their audiences. And that's part of the reason why we see now a lot of news uh, produced with an overlay of point of view. And some readers and audiences hate that. Some, you know, you've only got to look at the popularity of the ABC to see that some news consumers really do not want their news leavened with the, with a pointed with a healthy dose of point of view, but there are a number of news consumers who who do want their news uh, leavened with a point of view, and uh, and are actively looking for that. Are actively looking for you know, coverage to be punchy and opinionated and all of this sort of stuff. So we've seen that trend. That trend sort of uh, has has run along with the rise of digital and the, and the rise of the internet so it's it's a very uh, complex set of factors um, <laughs> governing the media in australia at this point in time and we've been engaged in a very very uh public structural transformation over the last 10 years that's associated with the onset of the internet and the rise of the 24 7 news cycle uh, and we're not we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, I think the next ten years are also going to be transformative in terms of the way these various ecosystems start to present themselves to audiences. And viability remains a major challenge for all media organisations because there's there's just not enough revenue coming in the door to sustain what I call industrial journalism, which is like journalism journalism running at at strength with well staffed newsrooms with lots of specialist reporters, with lots of time to invest in investigative work. Uh, all those things are under challenge and under threat. Well, and uh, in the minute or so that we've, we've got left with you, Catherine, I, I mean, you are uh, adjunct over at the University of Canberra in the journalism school there, and uh, I wonder what your views are about this kind of new $60 million regional fund that um, was negotiated alongside these uh, media reforms, whether that is likely, hopefully, to lead to maybe some um, mentoring of younger journalists and that sort of thing. Do you think that's likely? Well, I think the, the, the concerns I have with the fund are that, uh, that we probably don't at this stage have a shortage of people who want to be journalists and who are lining up to be journalists in terms of young people who are still blessed and wanting, wanting to get into this industry. I don't think that's the problem we've got. 
I think the problem we've got is that we don't have jobs for those for those people. That it is harder and harder for young journalists to actually get a paid job in journalism. So I've got a, a few issues with training a whole bunch of people for uncertain employment outcomes. Uh, and the other thing is I'm not quite sure how this fund will work in practice and what this fund will sort of enable. I gather it's for uh, technology and equipment and various things. Look, no small newsroom is going to turn down their nose at, at, uh, at that sort of assistance. But I think, again, um, if there's money available in order to fund journalism, my disposition as a, as a working journalist would be that that funds journalism rather than funds uh, somebody getting a new computer. Uh, and it's not at all clear to me uh, whether or not this fund will be available to uh, you know, bring on a couple of people to do an investigation or to buy people time in order to you know, probe deeper turn an issue around in more than one direction so I've got some issues with it. Uh, I'm sure that Nick Xenophon did his best in trying to sort of get some kind of funding for diversity at a time where the media landscape is going to become much more concentrated but I think there's some serious questions about what this fund will actually do. Well we'll wait for your next essay. (laughs) 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 Uh, Catherine Murphy thank you so much for being on Triple R. No worries. Thanks a lot, guys. And Australia's mandatory detention laws as they apply to those arriving by boat can be traced back to the Keating government. But why were those laws introduced at that time and how did we move from a more humanitarian approach to asylum seekers arriving by boat in the 1970s to the current border protection regime that sees refugees in indefinite offshore detention? Claire Higgins has tackled this question in her new book, Asylum by Boat, Origins of Australia's Refugee Policy. She's an historian and a senior research associate at the Andrew Minata Calder Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. And it's really great to have you on Triple R, Claire. Thanks very much for having me, Carly and Dillian. And um, why did you go back to the 1970s and the arrival of Vietnamese asylum seekers at that time uh, to, to, I suppose, ask this question? And what did you find that was, was new? Mm. I went back to that time because I wanted to understand how Australian refugee policy has got to this point that we're at today and I found that these harsh policy options that we have in place now, detention and turning back votes were actually proposed back then but they were rejected Yeah and I mean that's the really um, kind of the thing that really stands out most from your book Claire and you've included an interview with the late Malcolm Fraser in your book and he said to you when you asked um, you know the the choice that he was faced with when those um, first boatloads of asylum seekers arrived in the mid to late 1970s in his perspective it was a yes or no question you could either decide to help or not was it that simple for Malcolm Fraser at that time? It is funny because I said to him, as I write in the book, was it really that black and white? And he said, well, what else can you do? And it's so true because the alternative answers to that question, which are turning back boats and detaining people, have been implemented, but they haven't uh, resolved the, the fate and the protection needs of these people and they've done nothing for Australia's international reputation. So really when he was saying, what else can you do? He was saying, you need to work with other countries. You need to take a humane and dignified approach to the treatment of asylum seekers. It's the only way forward. It, it's not uh, Forced migration is not a, a something that can be solved. It's something that needs to be managed and that um, needs to happen in a very rational way. And that's what I 
I found that the Australian government did at that time. And, uh, I mean, what was new to me was that the first boats um, of Vietnamese asylum seekers arrived in the Whitlam era. And, um, I mean, Whitlam famously embraced our region uh, but struggled to know what to do when the boats arrived. And as it turned out, he didn't kind of, he wasn't in government when uh, it really needed to be managed, as you say. But, uh, with, I mean, were you aware of that, that the dilemmas in his government? Uh, I actually wasn't. I, it was um, quite incredible. Some other historians have written about it as well, that it's after the fall of Saigon in April 1975, the end of that in long-running U.S. war in Vietnam, there had been a huge outflow of people. 6,000 people managed to get by boat to Singapore as well as to many other countries in the region. And Whitlam's government sat down and thought, OK, what will we do if asylum seekers try to get to Australia? But in the end, they didn't arrive on Whitlam's watch. They arrived April 1976, a year later, uh, when Fraser had recently come to office. And it all started with five young men who managed to get to Darwin Harbour. And then by the time Fraser left office in March 83, 60,000 Indo-Chinese refugees had been resettled safely by Australian officials uh, in Australia, along with tens of thousands of other refugees. So it was a huge change, a huge period of development of policy and programs in this area, because when those five young men arrived, there was no procedure in place to receive them or to assess their protection claims. The Department of Immigration didn't really know what to do with them. And so the the difference, the, the enormous effort that went into developing policy and, and resettlement programs was quite considerable over that time. It really was a, a transformative moment in Australian history because, um, as you will know and your listeners will know, the long years of white Australia of racially discriminatory entry policy had only ended in the early 70s, really. And so when the asylum seekers arrived, that was a huge policy challenge. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to research the book as well, not just to see how we got to the point we're at today, but to see how government dealt with what was then an unprecedented challenge. And, and we get a really uh, interesting insight into the, the discussions and decisions that were made um, between kind of key players around that time, including key players in the Fraser government. But what, what really startled me was the government's public response to these boat arrivals of, of asylum seekers. In the press releases that were issued, as, as you write, there were allusions to their profession, even included quotes from some of those asylum seekers now. And, and later on, uh, then immigration minister Michael McCullough in a joint press uh, press release with then Foreign Minister Andrew Peacock said in a statement that the asylum seeker issue must not be politicised because the basic question of human suffering involved transcends partisan advantage in an election context and they said they would not be risk-taking action against genuine refugees just to get a message across and I mean that stands in really stark contrast to the situation we see today with uh, you know allusions to asylum seekers not in terms of their personal circumstances but as illegals arriving by boat. Absolutely. It really is quite striking to read those things. Now, we mustn't forget that, obviously, um, that approach that Mr McKellar and Mr Peacock took, for example, in that press release, it was strategic. They were trying to avoid um, a political issue, and they made that statement in an election campaign after seven boats had arrived in one week. But strategic or not, it was um, an incredibly... Um, admirable approach to take and certainly not what we see now. They used very humane 
language. They tried to encourage the Australian public to see that the people who were getting on boats and sailing to Australia were just like us and they had protection needs. And they still engaged in emphasising the idea of immigration control, um, the same as government does now, but they did it in a very different way. Mr McKellar and his successors as Immigration Minister Ian McPhee, they emphasised that Australia had processes in place to assess whether or not someone had a valid claim for protection under refugee and human rights law. And that was the orderly control mechanism. And that was a fulfilment of Australia's international obligations. And so they were reassuring the public, but just in a very different way than they do today. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the the research files that you came across and and sought uh, in writing this book, um, namely from UNHCR? Yes, in addition to the interviews that you mentioned that I managed to do with Mr Fraser and others and the Australian Government archives that I um, looked through in Canberra, I was very lucky to have access to a rare and extensive collection of files created by the UNHCR office that was in Sydney at that time and by the UNHCR legal advisor in Australia at that time. And he's actually now the world's leading expert on the Refugee Convention. His name is Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. But he was the legal advisor in Sydney at the time and he would travel up to Canberra and liaise with the Department of Immigration and sit uh, on the committee that the government had set up to assess people's refugee claims and he would offer advice and he also travelled up to Darwin and saw uh, asylum seekers when they came when they sailed to Australia and how they were received how they were intercepted at sea and brought into Darwin Harbour brought ashore placed in the quarantine station for a few days and then flown to accommodation around Australia and his um, comments on that reception uh, uh, extraordinary in light of current policy. He writes that they were received and treated with compassion, that anyone with a serious medical issue got treatment within hours, um, that the asylum seekers could cook for themselves and go fishing and and really um, engage in activities that were deliberately designed as psychological benefit after um, their having been at sea and suffered the hardships of that long voyage. So it was a, a very special um, set of files that I could discover and share in this book because they offer a really independent international perspective and assessment of Australian policy at that time. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Claire Higgins, the author of new book, Asylum by Boat, The Origins of Australia's Refugee Policy. And so we, we see at that time, as you were just talking about, Claire, a real willingness to work with the UNHCR, UNHCR. And I guess there were pragmatic reasons for that. The government was trying to come up with a solution to the problem they were faced with, with these unprecedented boat arrivals. But I mean, to fast track to, I guess, the, the modern era we're in now, of course, uh, mandatory detention was um, adopted by the Keating government. Um, and we've seen offshore processing become kind of a, a bipartisan policy of, of both major parties now in our political system. But how have we got to a point where the asylum seeker issue has become so dehumanised and, and bound up in, I guess, a, a security discourse? Mm. I think there are a number of ways, a number of things that have changed. Certainly the nature of asylum seeking has changed in the last 40 years. Uh, but 
the politicisation that you mention and that securitised language, it's really about political leadership and a lack thereof these days. And what we were just talking about before in the book with those press releases, it really shows that no matter what was actually going on in the pragmatics of managing and, and figuring out how to manage the arrival of asylum seekers, it's the political side of things that really struck me to see how the government was communicating in a very rational way to the Australian public that these asylum seekers were deserving of our compassion and dignified, humane treatment and that we would do the same if we were in their position. I think that's really the thing that's changed because that has encouraged a negative view within the public, encouraged the politicisation of the issue and therefore encouraged this uh, race to the bottom in terms of uh, actual policy mechanisms. Uh, I suppose we hear um, different rhetoric depending on who's speaking. I mean, we even heard last week that the Prime Minister saying that Australia is the most successful multicultural um, country on earth, but a lot of people think that multiculturalism has failed. And, I mean, do you see that we're going to continue down that vein with, with, with rhetoric or, or, or do you see that it, it might change again over time? Oh, we can only hope that it will change. But I think uh, one of the findings that I made in the book was that Australia had successfully managed that resettlement of uh, refugees from Asia in, in the immediate aftermath of the end of white Australia. And I think there was a sense that when asylum seekers started arriving in Australia again in sustained numbers by boat from the late 1980s onwards, there was a feeling within government that maybe we couldn't manage that again successfully because there would be a backlash in the Australian community. So I think you, you can't promote um, positive multiculturalism and uh, the resettlement of refugees if you at the same time have this harsh dehumanised language about those who seek protection here directly. Well, congratulations on your book, and uh, it's very um, it's it's written in a way that's very understandable. So I commend you with that as well, because it is quite a complex area to write about. And uh, and all the best with it. Thank you very much, Carly, and thank you, Dylan, for having me. And hello to Sally Rippon, author and illustrator, back in the house um, for the first time. Well, actually, we had you last month, didn't we? I was I thinking was we here. missed you once. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's because I wasn't in for radio time. Oh, that's right. I've never been able to make up. Yeah, I haven't got over that. my withdrawals. <laughs> um, talking children's literature as we do um, uh, once a month here on the Grapevine. And uh, where would we be without publishers? Um, today we're going to meet Alexandra Tommy Clark, and um, she is the owner of Burbay Books, and it's great to have you Alexandra Thank you. and um, yeah tell us about publishers Sally how important are they Oh, well, books wouldn't really exist without them, would they? And But I think people don't really understand the amount of people that are involved in putting a book together. Um, certainly in a big publishing house, you'll have a whole team of people working with you. But then even if it's a smaller independent publishing house, you have some, a couple of people doing a lot of work behind the scenes. So as Alexandra and I were chatting about just previously, we were saying how it is often the author and the illustrator that gets to stand on the stage and wear the crown, but there's a whole team of people that get them up there. So they're incredibly important. So Burbay Books is kind of of a new kid on the block you've been around since 2009 Alexandra what drove you to start up a an independent uh, publisher well I had just been on a trip to Europe with my young family and um, I saw the beautiful books that the French and the Finnish were reading to their children and 
sort of looked for sort of those kind of books for um, my children and it, they weren't sort of there. So um, that's when I started doing, um, I started translating two books, two French books. So it started off with two French books. Yeah. So what is it about European books that you think are, feel so different to Australian books that you wanted uh, I, to bring to yeah, I think country? I think it has changed. I, I do think publishing in Australia has changed, but I think it, it, it is incredibly creative. There's no topics that are untouched in Europeans. Like um, I even saw a book at the last Bologna Book Fair about ISIS, how to teach oh, wow. yeah. okay. mm. So there's no topic that's untouched. Mm. Um, and I like that. You know, I think I think children are incredibly um, clever. Do, do you think that's because a niche market in Europe is sustainable, whereas potentially a niche market here yeah. could be not so viable? That's right. There's um, a lot of boutique small children's publishers in, in Europe, mm. whereas in Australia is obviously not as many. It's a smaller market, so it's, it's a, it is difficult in that sense, yeah. And so when you began the, the um, publishing house, what sort of books were you looking for to be kind of your first cabs off the rank? Well, I was looking for some um, books for my children for Christmas, and I um, there was a there's a beautiful French publisher that I, I, I viewed, and I wanted to know if they had a book. Um, it was actually on the, about the Prince of Peace. It's called The Prince of Peace. It's a, it's a play on the Prince and the P, and um, I asked um, if they had an English version of it, and so I just um, they said no, and I said, "Well, was the English licensing rights available?" And I just went from there. Wow! <laughs> but I have come from a publishing background. But I so, love, yeah. I, yeah I, I mean, I love you say that Burbay Books is about taking risks and being bold, and I mean that shows that you're you're bold straight up there. Yeah. But I mean, what does risk taking look like in children's literature? Oh, I think just being in publishing can be risk taking, <laughs> especially in Australia. It's a really it's a tough industry. Like it's you know. The, it's a um, it's a smaller market in Australia. The the margins are razor thin, so you know it's um, to do the type of books that Burbay does, which is um, very um, you know a little bit left of centre. Um, they um, you've got a small market, so um, yeah, what is important about independent publishing um, is that it, it it is all that risk taking that the big publishing houses quite often can't afford. To. I'm sure they'd like to, but they've obviously got um, you know they've got a staff, they've got overheads to run, so small publishers can come in and and take on that risk. And I think a lot of the Australian buyers of books here, you know, who don't really understand how the industry works, they will look at the price of Australian books and think, oh, that's so much more expensive than the US and the UK, but they're not really taking into account the production and the and that you have to sell so many more to make ends meet here, And whereas in the US you can do things very cheaply because there's just a much bigger audience. And so if you are going into your local bookstore and taking a photograph of an international book and buying it online, you're really decimating the market that we have here. And so these independent publishers, I guess, that you're talking about are really important to to create that, the I guess, the diversity in what's coming out as well, that we're not all looking for the next um, blockbuster, that we, we do want a unique voice in publishing. Yeah, it's not that main... They're generally not mainstream. So, and like, like for Burbe, we will work with lesser-known authors, especially um, on our Australian line books, so, you know... So, um, and, and we'll um, do on topics that aren't necessarily um, mainstream. Like I think one of my French books is I deal with um, Alzheimer's. Another book that I uh, deal with is Bullying on uh, another French book. And so there's, you know, a range of topics that I'm game to um, take on. But I also see in terms of Burbe, the way Burbe um, runs is that I see it very much like food for children. You know, children are naturally going to go for junk food. You know, it's sort of, you know, they're going to go for the chocolate, the chips. But as a parent, it's up to me to give them nutritional food. It's the same with books. You know, it's up to me as a parent to give them nutritional books. 
they, yeah, they're going to go for those Disney-style books, you know, the visually. But I think it's up to me to sort of give them content and aesthetically beautiful books as well to mm. sort of give them those mind-growing books. Mm. Something challenging. Yeah. It's like taking them to a gallery. You know, they might not understand every painting on the wall, yeah. but there is something about being exposed And, they, and they do take it in. They mm. take it in. They might not initially take it in, but they take it in eventually. Mm. I'm interested in the, the translation process as well because with kids' books, um, each word carries so much currency. There's, I mean, more so than in a novel. It's more like poetry in a way mm. that there's a rhythm to the words. They, they really matter. How difficult has it been to, I guess, translate some of those books into English and, and retain the, what's magic and what makes them good in the first place? I think I have worked with a fantastic translator. Like, I think I'm just lucky that I've, I've got someone who's incredibly talented and he is just, um, he un- understands the nuances and I think it's a skill. And, and not only be able to translate it, but then to put it into English, mm. into a well-written, that's, that's an incredibly uh, skilled area and there's not that many of them around so I'm just really lucky to be able to work with Michael Sidney. And you've won awards, Um, tell us about the awards you've recently won for your publishing house. Yeah so every year um, Bologna has a children's book fair, it's the only dedicated children's book fair in the world, there's lots of book fairs, there's the Frankfurt book fair which is huge and there's the Paris book fair and the New York book fair but Bologna in Italy is the only dedicated children's book fair and in the last three years, they've um, um, they've just started these um, what they call the BOP Awards, so the Best Publisher Awards, um, given to publishers that are, are brave in their editorial content and creativity. And um, they do they divide it into areas of Europe, America, Africa, Oceania, and Asia. And Burbe won it this year, which was a great accolade to win. On, really you know, exciting, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, congratulations. And, uh, I, I can see, you know, the kinds of, of risks and I suppose for me makes it really interesting. The books is you've got an alphabet book. M is for mutiny, a history by alphabet. And the first one is A is acknowledgement to country. And I think um, all the way through this book, you tell it straight. You tell Australian history straight. Um, some of, you know, some of the kind of colonial heroes are in there. Um, but also there's the, a, a different perspective. It's not just this sort of Eurocentric perspective in there and um, I mean what's the response been to that book has it been greeted uh, warmly well it gets released in November so you're seeing um, oh am I <laughs> well I'm interested well, how, I mean are you yeah. nervous then about it being released no because or? I have done a series of yeah. um, on First Settlement and I sort of started the First Settlement series as a response to um, my kids understanding a lot more about Gallipoli in these early uh, primary years than um, First Settlement and First Nation and all those. Uh, so I started off with a, a series of books on um, one is um, just a fiction book, um, just introducing the whole idea of First Settlement coming to Australia. And then I do, um, I, I go a little bit more sophisticated with stories for older kids from 8 plus, like the, the amazing story between Ben Along and Philip. And that, that I think is one of Australia's most extraordinary stories you know you've got Arthur Phillip the first governor of Australia the George Washington that kids don't seem to know and then the relationship and the story between Ben Along the indigenous story and it's an extraordinary story about um, it starts off with you know a terrible way that Ben Along is kidnapped to and um, but eventually it turns into a friendship and you know he you know it, it is it, it's an extraordinary story and it's a picture storybook it's a picture storybook yeah. because I've read um the um Jackie French Nambury account of it you know different kind of relationship but it's there and it but it's a it's a, a young adult novel yeah. yeah and it needs to be introduced early because there's so many things that what we try to do with this series of books is 
in an early trying to put it into um, you know history is also in modern day context so we talk about in a way that you know you've got the discarded of Australia uh, you know it's come out the convicts that have come out to Australia which is the discarded and then we sort of in a very subtle way talk about the discarded going to Nauru or you know we're sort of trying to bring in this the parallels there Mm. So, to for children that it's it, to be open to discussion, and I, I think um, the kids respond well to it. And mm. you know, we talk about, you know, the log books, which is equivalent to blogging. We just talk about lots of things that they can relate in history as well as the present. That's great. And unlike a lot of the big, more mainstream publishers, a lot of the work that you publish, you directly commission. So you'll come up with an idea. You might see there's something that you feel quite passionately about or a gap in the market. And then how do you go about getting the book made from there? Yeah, well, so the Ben Along and Philip story, um, I found an extraordinary story. And a lot of the um, the stories... Um, uh, and so I sort of... Bern Emmerichs, who's the ceramic artist that I work with, she is um, Melbourne-based. And I found, actually, my discovery of early settlement history through her artwork. And I sort of approached her to sort of see if she'd be interested in working with me and... And then I sort of knew of this story about Ben Along and Philip, and uh, I know Bern Emmerichs had done some artwork on Bern em- on um, this story. So then I, um, I approached uh, an author that I know, um, Michael, who would be interested in maybe working on it, and that's how it went. Mm. But, uh, authors that I know that I, I think are in line with my editorial and narratives that I'm wanting to produce. Yes, you've just tuned in. We're speaking with Sally Rippon for this month's rendition of The Reading Room along with Burbay Books publisher and owner Alexandra Yotomi-Clark. And, I mean, in this segment we've spoken a lot, Sally, about the collaborations between particularly Australian authors and, and illustrators. But through Burbay Books, I imagine that there's been some really great international collaborations where authors and illustrators have been teamed up with without previously kind of knowing a lot about each other's work. Has that happened? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's right. Um, so at the moment I'm currently working with a Melbourne author and a Spanish illustrator. Um, so um, she, uh, John Dixon's working on a book with me and we're working with uh, the Spanish illustrator Garudi. And Garudi is huge in Spain. So it's fantastic to have these collaborations. And I'm also working with a Japanese paper cut artist who's just extraordinary. So it's just lovely to be able to work with all this talent on an international way. Mm. And one of the great things about the Bologna Children's Book Fair is the incredible exhibition of um, international illustrators' work and you say when you go to Bologna it's a great opportunity to see a really broad range of illustrators and get into contact with them and potentially winning this award I guess has brought some insight into what you're doing here as yeah. well. I suppose it's sort of, you know, it is like the Oscars in children's literature so you do get a bit of spotlight and, you know, if you read carpet and stuff. <laughs> yeah, you get a bit of, you know, you get the extra free glass of champagne. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice because then um, you sort of, you know, the, the spotlight's on you and great. Um, yeah, the accolade and people wanting to work with, you know, somebody that's um, appreciated, I suppose. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know that much about children's publishing, but is that is that common to collaborate across borders? Because I imagine that, um, I mean, Sally, you know international writers and illustrators, but is it um, easy or, or um, normal to collaborate with each other on books? In my experience, and I've mainly worked with big publishers, it's not very common. Um, in fact, probably the only book I've illustrated for an international publisher that was um, organised by Anne James and Anne Haddon from Books Illustrated they do travel and they exhibit Australian illustrators around the world and they put me in contact with a Korean publisher. But usually I think it can be quite complicated um, and potentially should be less so now with the, the way that we're able to connect with people across the 
the seas. But the only time um, I've managed to publish an American author here was uh, somebody who I was quite friendly with already and we came up with the idea together. But I think the other difficult thing is a lot of children's authors rely on publicising their work through visiting schools, through festivals. And so I know certainly when I was living overseas for a while, my publishers found that that was quite tricky that I wasn't there to promote my work. So what happens when you're working with international pub- um, people in the publishing industry? How are you finding that you're able to to promote their work? Is that Does that fall then on you? As yeah, it generally falls onto me, yeah. yeah. Um, but so, look, it is difficult, the whole the market is difficult just getting media in the first place like mm. children's getting any kind of media on children's books is really difficult so thank you <laughs> oh, we do it all the time here <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's very few considering um, children's publishing takes 53% of the sales in market it's surprising that we don't that there's not, not it's enough, not reflected is not it? reflected really <laughs> in the reviews and the space in the newspapers so that's a little bit disappointing because um, it's more done in catalogues isn't it yeah it is all mostly done in catalogues a lot of blog sites obviously are really important and um obviously the independent children's uh, all the independent bookstores are really important mm. so in terms of you know it is difficult so um and then and that's probably the reason why a lot of the big publishers don't um but i quite like it because there's a lot of other ways i can i can sell them I can sell the licensing rights to, say, the Germans or the Koreans. And so even though it's a Japanese book that I've created, I've got an ability to sell it into different markets. And sometimes it's harder. It's just that international international look sometimes is difficult. Um, if it's a very Australian book. Sometimes they don't. Like, obviously, my first settlement series books haven't been translated into 10 different countries, but <laughs> it's surprising about that one. The Germans don't want to know about Australian first settlement history. Right. <laughs> um, I find it interesting. But, um, yeah, so the, the ability is that maybe I might not be able to sell them a lot in Australia, but I have abilities to sell them sell the book into the French market or the German mm. market. And you're, are you feeling your way? Because it sounds like it's not something that you can just say oh that publisher over there is doing that i'll just do yeah. what they're doing no i i just yeah i go with my my aesthetic my gut i don't really there's no formula just if i like it it sounds very like, freeing yeah. i'm sure it's very difficult <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you're kind of going you know what it's going to follow my intuition and my yeah, interests i think and also i do have three kids and i sort of think of what i want my kids reading and what i want my kids um, you know, viewing and, and so that a lot of it is guided. Well, it looks like it's constantly expanding. I, I just by looking at um, the information you sent through before we had you on today, you're publishing more and more books each year, and mm. and so obviously it's your gut instinct is working out for you. Yeah, and I think uh, yeah, Bebe is obviously again known is known in the market for quality, high quality books, uh, and creative um, and quirky and. Um, yeah, creative. Mm. So Emma's for Mutiny is the next one that's coming out. Is yes. there another one on the shelves that we should be looking out for? Well, I, I, I think all my First Settlement series books are fabulous. Mm. They're well written and I think um, and they do well in all the schools, obviously, with that first contact curriculum that's happening. So they, they do quite well. But, um, you know, um, they range. So I'm just doing the, the Heads and Tails, which is by um, John Canty. He's a Melbourne author illustrator and that's done uh, really well. That's actually sold... The Germans have taken it, the French have taken it, the North Americans have taken it. So that's a that's been a great little coup for that book. So to to get on that international stage, and also not only just the it's being taken up by um, these countries, it's getting picked up by the like German's number one publishing house, oh, Candlework Press, which is you know a huge publishing house in America, a French publisher, which the French um, sort of barely take any translations because they do so many beautiful stuff so to be able to get your books 
translate it into another country um, is, 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 you know, it's just fabulous. It's an accomplishment. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. And, I mean, how many books can you produce a year? I mean, your list is growing, but yeah. how many? Well, next year I'm doing eight. So it, it generally there's four to six, but that's because um, I'm small and it's pretty much me and a team of freelancers that I work with. And you're so. moving from picture books to um, other market, yes. uh, age group markets. So junior fiction and, and we're planning our first one uh, YA. So it, uh, in some ways it's a sort of a natural progression with as my kids are growing. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sort of um, watching what they're reading. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, um, that's interesting. Uh-oh, when they become adults. <laughs> <laughs> what are you reading there? <laughs> but I, I, I wonder uh, with... Uh, sort of growing um, your your business and your list. Do you feel like you'll continue to keep taking risks and and being bold? I mean, I suppose the hope is there, but yeah. can you see that that will change? I, I don't think. I think that I think that's just me. Like I've always thought that. Uh, I think you know you come to a realization that that's just you're, you're sort of the square peg <laughs> in the round hole kind of situation and. Uh, I think that's sort of me. I don't. I somebody said, "Oh, you know, wouldn't you want to have a one of, one of these books that sells for a million?" And I said, "Well, I'd love those, but I don't know if it was put in front of me. Sometimes it's just I, I you know, I would pass on it because it just doesn't fit in with the type of books that I." go for mm-hmm. so you know if it was you know somebody said oh, what about you had the uh, was it the shades of grey book and I, I know <laughs> I would reject it straight away but you know if I knew retrospectively that it was going to sit on many books I probably would no so. I can't see who's approaching you then like I mean is that how you're finding that I mean you're going out and, and seeking books but people are also pitching to you are they yeah or? in terms well I um, when you go to Bologna so you generally have a stand so quite often you have you have all, all these appointments that are made and um, so, um, and so you get you get um, lots of publishing houses saying, "Can we meet? Look at, look at your catalogue. We're interested in your books. We've seen your website because you're listed on on the Bologna uh, exhibitors list." And everybody's searching um, who they think might be like minded with their books. So there's, that's sort of how it sort of works. Yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds like you need to put your website in different languages as well, like. Um, or Italian and German and <laughs> English is the national. Yeah. the international language of business. So generally, like I, everybody, like I, even my Japanese illustrator who you know doesn't um, speak a lot of English, we always do um, English, despite yeah. my um, Japanese husband's. <laughs> I could res- access all those resources. I don't. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, all the best, and um, congrats again on your. Um, Emmy of whatever it oh. is, Loki. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bop award. I like it as a Bop award. That actually sounds better. It's more playful. Yeah, it is. Um, Burbay Books, publisher and owner Alexandra Yatomi Clark and expanding the books that are available in our market but also around the world. And um, all the best and I'd love to check back in with you. Thank uh, you. Over, yeah, we'll be doing this in a couple of years still. So, yeah, um, see how you're going. And thanks, Sally. Um, Sally Rippon, author and illustrator in her own right and comes in um, every month with someone else amazing from the children's literature world and um yeah we'll catch you again in a month's time looking forward to see you then thank you this has been a podcast from 3 triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au